Alicia. I'm Mary. We're here today to talk to you with a good friend and colleague, Mr. Phil Howell. Hi, Phil. Hi. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm Phil Howell. I'm the dean of the DePaul School, which is a private independent school, K-8, for students with learning differences, including dyslexia. All right. And we asked Phil to be with us today to talk about some new information and um, documents that are out in our state and to talk about some of his knowledge about how to reach students with learning differences, especially in literacy. How does that sound, guys? That sounds like fun. Let's go. Okay, so when we first talked to Phil, we had just seen a new document that was released in the state of Kentucky back in, I believe it was January, right guys? Yes. January of 2019, and it's called the Kindergarten to Grade 3 Dyslexia Toolkit, a Guide and Resource. And some of our excitement over finding out about this document had to do with the fact that we hadn't really seen much of anything formalized in our state that addressed the needs of learners who have dyslexia or those who maybe have some of the same characteristics as a dyslexic student and might need some different kind of teaching strategies. So we were wanting to go to the expert, Mr. Phil Howell, and get his ideas about this document. And we're just going to work our way through some of our highlights and our questions. Are we good? We're good. Alicia, you got anything yes, else? exciting. Okay. So first of all, what had you heard about the, um, the House bill that went through or about these tools that our Department of Ed is producing for us. Had you heard anything about that, Phil? I had. We we do watch those kind of developments, and they, as you know, they kind of come and go. Various attempts over the past several decades have been made to address the specific needs of kids with reading disabilities uh, through the law. We were watching with interest, and I was pleased that much of what we ended up with was research-based. It, it did show that people knew what they were talking about when they developed it, and that was a big relief. Alicia and I are I big fans of research, <laughs> and we're not sure why sometimes that's not popular <laughs> because that's where we always go. All right, good. I'm glad to know it's research-based. I went straight to the index and started looking at some of the resources they drew on just because it's more um, more resources for us. Those of us who are teaching in, you know, pretty much a general ed population uh, helps us to strengthen our own knowledge when they do include those resources. So I noticed that it says in the introduction that the goals of this bill, the Ready to Read Act or House Bill 187, is to increase educators' knowledge about characteristics of dyslexia, number one, appropriate teaching strategies to use when instructing students with dyslexia, number two, and then a process for identifying their needs. Those seem like worthy goals. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk first about knowledge of the characteristics of dyslexia. Do you want to give us any background about that, about characteristics? How do you know when a student needs to be with you at your school? What do you what do you typically see? Sure. I would start by saying the definition that they used in this toolkit is the best definition that they could have used. Uh, they're pulling from a definition that was created by consensus back originally in 1994 and then uh, revised in 2002. Before that point, it was really hard to get good research, whether it's educational or psychological or medical research on dyslexia because there were so many different definitions floating around. And so researchers recognized the need for consensus so that they could really make sure one study was matching another study. And uh, so the definition that they use is is the definition that came through that consensus project. It does identify the main 
uh, or most common source of dyslexia or underlying factor in dyslexia, which is uh, phonemic awareness deficits, but does acknowledge that there are other possible sources as well, and we can talk about that. There is not a single profile called dyslexia you know, that matches every student. You meet one child with dyslexia, you've met one child with dyslexia. You know, there, there are different nuances and different types of dyslexia, but there is also very clearly a type of reading issue called dyslexia, and then there are other types of reading issues that are not dyslexia. And so this definition helps to, uh, to delineate that. How would you feel about going ahead and reading that definition for the listeners in case they don't have the document? Or oh, sure. would you like me to, or do you have it right there? I do. Okay. Uh, dyslexia means a specific learning disability that is neurological in origin. And I, th- I do think, if I can just yeah, annotate as I go, mm-hmm. that's a hugely important issue because uh, it clarifies that this is not an issue related to class. It's not an issue related to... Uh, lack of effort or motivation. It's not uh, an issue related to intelligence. It is a neurologically based uh, issue, and we can talk more about that as we go along. Uh, But the definition continues, it's characterized by difficulties with accurate or fluent word recognition and by poor spelling and decoding abilities, period. Which means if a student reads well, if they word call well, but they're not comprehending, that's not dyslexia. If, uh, If they you know, it really is an issue where a child or adult's brain really struggles to interpret written language. Okay. Period. Um, these difficulties typically result from a deficit in, phonolo- in the phonological component of language that's often unexpected in relation to other cognitive abilities and the provision of effective classroom instruction. So again, this is not an issue of bad teaching. This is in spite of good teaching, these difficulties remain. Secondary consequences uh, may include problems with reading comprehension and reduced reading experience that can impede the growth of vocabulary and background knowledge. So certainly if one's having trouble interpreting the written code of language, there are other aspects of reading that they're not going to do well in, Mm -hmm. like comprehension and and vocabulary development. Uh, But that's not the source of the issue. Those Those are byproducts. Right. So if the student is struggling to read, then a byproduct of that is going to be that they want to read less. Absolutely. And then that becomes a problem with their background knowledge being built, their vocabulary being built, unless, you know, they happen to be in a situation where they have a family or or others who are talking to them a lot about academic concepts. They can build them that way, right? Absolutely. But not as much in um, their their written um, understanding. Absolutely. Their, Their oral language can be quite strong. It's just when it comes to uh, making sense of the written code of language where they struggle. And you're right in terms of that that cycle that develops. There's a negative cycle where students who find reading very difficult and painful and embarrassing, they avoid it, which means they're not getting the practice they would need to get better. And so that gap continues to grow and that cycle just compounds itself over and over again. Keith Stanovich did some just beautiful work years ago identifying uh, that cycle. There's, there are two different cycles. One that's the positive, kids who read easily, they do it a lot, which gives them practice and makes them stronger and they read even more easily. So they're spiraling in one direction very positively. These other kids are spiraling in the opposite direction. And uh, Keith Stanovich called that the Matthew effect. And he based that on a scripture verse in the book of Matthew that talks about those who are blessed with a lot 
are given even more. Mm -hmm. And those who are given very, who start out with very little, even that is taken away. Like the rich get richer. Yeah, the <laughs> rich the get richer get and the poor get poorer. That's yes. the, the, the summary of that. Okay. And, uh, that's certainly true for these kids. And because of that lack of practice and experience, they don't develop vocabulary, they don't develop fluency, they don't learn to comprehend, they, uh, they don't develop reading preferences and reading habits. So there's a, a wide range of issues that result from what originally was just a, a problem with decoding. Um, and then how is their writing affected? It's the same type of issue. It's, it's that written code of language, whether it's reading or trying to get it down through spelling and writing, uh, it, it's a surprisingly difficult thing for people with dyslexia. And really, I think that's the most striking distinction that you'll see between someone with dyslexia and their, their reading peers. It's not, only, it's not just the difference in skill level, which we all know about. What's striking is the difference in difficulty. For some, it's so easy, and for others, it is grueling, grueling work. Well, we're going to pick your brain about how to help those kids sure. <laughs> who have those difficulties because we really, we know them, we see them all the time. Um, Alicia and I both were uh, teaching a grad course in literacy where we um, shared with the teachers at one point some characteristics of a dyslexic student and every teacher was able to easily say, oh, wow, that's this kid, this, you know, mm -hmm. so many kids. And I think they feel a bit unprepared. They they sort you know teachers take their kids and their kids' achievement very seriously. They have we want more than anything to see our kids succeed, right? And then when we find out there's a missing piece for us, then we just want to know. We just really want to fill that in. So absolutely, we're hoping some of that's going to come out of this document too. That there'll be more conversation about it. I wanted to ask you about fluency because they talked about secondary consequences being mm -hmm. comprehension and then vocabulary and background knowledge but what about fluency there? Uh, fluency, the general idea of fluency certainly is affected and is a secondary consequence uh, but also fluency is a part of the definition of dyslexia in terms of being able to quickly and accurately recognize words and decode words that they don't know. So it's sort of, it's, it's a component of the problem and it's also a, a big factor of what, okay. what results from that. It's both. Yeah, when you think and of, effect. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I work a lot of my time with kindergarten teachers and many of our kids come in without the number of words that maybe an average child who's in a home that is read to and talked to and and has been exposed to all those early um, literacy behaviors. How does a teacher determine when it's just um, a problem that they that they need to be concerned about, or it's just this child needs more time? Right. They need to explicitly be taught letters and sounds. That the letter reversals are just developmental. Right. At what? Because it's said in this document at an early age you need to identify, um, you know, identifying dyslexia at an early age is key. So one of the questions we had was, what age is that, um, is there a certain range, age range? Is there um, some developmental milestones that need to be checked off first before, before you're concerned? I think concern is a great word because what you can test for quite early or screen for is risk. You can see a kindergartner who's struggling with number of letters they recognize, their ability to segment words that have three phonemes in them. And you can become concerned. 
and realize that there is risk there. That, that doesn't mean that they, they are dyslexic, but they are at risk of not developing to be good readers. And uh, so intervention should happen right then on those fundamental uh, skills, those foundational skills that eventually will build into reading. Whether or not there's a, a label of dyslexia on, you know, that's given to a student is really beside the point originally. Mm -hmm. You're just really looking for what kids are in need of intervention. As, inter as that intervention continues, the amount of struggle that you see really does help to diagnose whether or not there's dyslexia there or this is a child who uh, didn't hear well uh, for several years due to ear infections and therefore didn't build good phonemic awareness. But if that hearing is corrected now, this child has ear tubes, that child's going to learn very quickly. Is, you know, their brain is going to make those connections and adapt very quickly, and you're going to see a, a better rate of learning there. When you see that ongoing struggle, that's when you come to realize, okay, there is more going on here. There's more something biologically you know, going on here that, that's impeding progress. I thought it was really good to see that they used that term early age because sometimes I think we wait maybe a little too long thinking, oh, it's a developmental, there's like this umbrella over development. And um, I've even been told at times, oh, that student's only in first grade. There's no way you can know. But yeah, there is. You know, there are ways that you can know, like you said, that a kid is at high risk for having difficulties so why wait and just hope that they develop somehow do you know that attitude is, as well absolutely okay. and, and that's what um, research is really pointing out to us is as we as educators have to have a sense of urgency about this early early, early urgency we urgency. can't wait to the end of first grade even no okay no. Um, the old approach where we would you know the wait to fail approach yeah. where a student had to have a big enough deficit between what they ought to be able to do and what they are doing uh, to to qualify for additional help what we were seeing in the research is we were missing the window of opportunity because as students develop as their brains develop um, remediation becomes much harder intervention becomes much much harder uh, by fourth grade, reading intervention is four times more difficult wow. than it would have been at kindergarten age. So the, the impetus is on us to, to intervene quickly. Not only is it harder, but it's much less successful. Uh, students who aren't identified as having a reading disability until third grade, by ninth grade, 74% of those students are still reading disabled. Right. Whereas if you intervene in the primary grades, you have an 84% success rate. So that third grade pledge we have to have everyone reading by third grade should be like a first grade <laughs> pledge almost. Well, at you least know? to get on the right road. Yeah, get it, it started sooner. Yeah, at least to get the additional support in there. For some kids, it will be a long, difficult road. For some, it will be shorter. But you know, there are varying degrees of dyslexia in, in terms of severity. And for some, it will be a long-term struggle but we've got to start earlier while the brain is as plastic as it, is, as it can be and before they've missed all of those chances of practicing and, and being exposed to, to the reading process. Well, since you're talking about the brain, we might as well dig right into that controversy that we, Lelisha and I have been noticing about um, 
some people in the world of literacy wanting to look at the brain and brain research and others saying no that's not really do you know what i mean though they I do. they they um they say it's not a it's not real yeah it's it's almost um like you have to prove that reading is a brain-based activity and that it's not just something kids just learn to do same as oral language there's a difference in how those right. are acquired and um, I don't know, we find ourselves confused sometimes because we don't see it as all one or the other. There's, you know, things to be learned from the brain and brain research, and there's also things to be learned from child development and all different approaches. But sure. um, it gets frustrating when you want to mention brain research, and suddenly that's almost like a trigger for some people <laughs> that you're talking about something you shouldn't be saying in the world of, of teaching kids to be literate. This is where our field lags decades behind scientific knowledge. <laughs> and I know that education isn't the only field that lags, but yeah. there is a definite lag in what we absolutely know by research, trickling down through universities and down into teacher education and teacher preparation and then into the classroom. We're decades behind. <laughs> I get too passionate <laughs> about okay. this. It's okay. No, go ahead. We've established beyond any shadow of a doubt that there is a brain-based difference with students who are having trouble learning to read. Mm -hmm. And we know much, we don't know everything, but we know quite a bit about what the brain does in order to read. And without that knowledge, we teachers really don't know what we're doing when we're trying to teach reading. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's this concept that, that learning to read should look like learning to speak. Right. That kids learn to speak. And it's natural. It's just a natural, inborn, genetic exactly. expression of something. And just by being exposed to it mm -hmm. and, and, and interacting with people, mm -hmm. we develop that, that capacity. Well, if you look at anything from genetics to, to brain imaging, uh, you know, all of that shows us very clearly that reading is very unlike speaking, genetically and in terms of brain structure and brain function. We are much more naturally designed to speak, or at least to communicate with our throat and voice and mouth. Our, our bodies and minds have adapted over millions of years to do that. Well, reading is a fairly new invention of human culture. We haven't had time to, to adapt through evolution for that. And what we do is we, we, our brains adapt to the process of reading. We have to pull from the back of the brain, the side of the brain, the front of the brain, the top of the brain, and get those those areas to interact with each other seamlessly. And what's mm -hmm. beautiful is our brains are so plastic that we do learn to do that if we have that pre-wiring just right. And most of our population is lucky enough to have that pre-wiring just right. But because it, reading involves so many parts of the brain, all it takes is a glitch in one area. What, that's not an error. It's not a, a default or, or something wrong. It's just something different that just happens to make reading harder, which is only a, uh, you know, a more recent product of our culture. A cultural artifact, I heard someone call reading. It's a cultural artifact, so we created it, and we have to, our brains have to learn how to do it. It's not something we're just born with. Right, yeah. right. There's no reading lobe in the brain. No. Uh, you know. right. and, and this is not new to brain design. Everyone's brain is very unique. Every single brain that has ever existed on the planet in the history of mankind 
has been one of a kind. It's impossible for two brains to look exactly the same. That's the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. But because there's so much diversity, there's some things we're going to do well and some things we aren't. When we were an ag agricultural society, no one cared about, no one even knew there was such a thing as dyslexia because reading wasn't that common. And it wasn't that important. It wasn't needed, right, right. as much. Yeah. Exactly. Well, um, thank you, because we agree. <laughs> we agree. And it's, you know, there are all sorts of theories about why that research hasn't um, necessarily impacted classroom practice. Um, we noticed that we're working with teachers who are working with kids they want that. They they have so many kids that they want to reach. And so when you provide them with that research and that science-based information, they're almost a little off-put, like, why didn't anybody tell me this before, which was the same way I felt when I learned a lot of it. But I think there are other levels of things happening that keeps it somehow from being systematically shared. And I, I don't really quite understand that, but um, I know teachers are open, at oh. least the ones I've met, and I think Alicia, you I, would say the same, I right? would say absolutely. Um, when they learned about the National Reading Panel research in our graduate class, every single teacher, teachers that have been teaching for two years and teachers that have been teaching for 22 years, mm -hmm. all said, why, why is this the first we're hearing of this? Why didn't I learn? Their question every time, why didn't I learn this in school? Mm -hmm. Why didn't I learn this in undergrad? Or even in my other graduate, you know, they, program, yes. I didn't learn that. Because when they took it back and used the assessments and used the research-based strategies, they, they had immediate results in, in their kids. And they, they were there to see the successes when everything else they had tried hadn't worked. And that really is what what changes someone's view of it. You yep. can't ignore results. And mm -hmm. I mean, we see that at DePaul because we are such a specialized population. You know, we're bringing in kids who even by sixth grade have not learned to read. They're reading on first or second grade level in some cases. And so we know that they have not been in bad classrooms or receiving poor instruction all those years. It's just not been the right type of instruction. It's not been informed instruction. And we see those students, after years of not learning to read, suddenly learning to read because of what we're providing. That You can't dispute that. And so when you're saying that, I'm just thinking, and I, I, ask, I make this statement a lot, but so do you, do you feel like knowing what you know and knowing all the research, should we have an, an illiteracy problem in our country? Or do you think we know enough of what to do? If, if we can educate teachers, could we significantly reduce that we should literacy be. rate? I, I just feel strongly that we know what to do. We sh it shouldn't be as high as it is, I feel like. It shouldn't. We should be a more literate society. There are so many reasons why someone may not learn to read. Uh, dyslexia is one of many uh, reasons. But the good news is that what works for kids with dyslexia also works for kids who've not had a lot of, of emergent literacy experience, mm -hmm. with kids who, who may have had poor education experiences, kids who have had emotional difficulties and now they're beyond that issue and they're ready to learn. There are so many reasons that lead to, to illiteracy that could be remediated through these same approaches. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm an ESL practitioner and we always 
share strategies for accommodating for our students and typically teachers always say well those things would help all the kids in my class you know I can do that for every single kid and I think that I think teachers see the logic in that I think that just getting them the opportunity to understand it the why we talk about that a lot Alicia and I sometimes teachers are told to do things but they don't know why they're doing it or what to look for to adapt it or change it you have to have deep knowledge to really be able to do that absolutely yeah and there are a lot of kids who do learn to read painlessly and they may not need a lot of work on phonemic awareness they may not need much phonics instruction but the good news is those types of of learning experiences don't harm them. And so when teachers struggle with, well, I have some kids who need this and other kids are reading very easily, some of that instruction can go to everybody and it doesn't harm anyone and does help a good portion of those kids. Then the the ongoing work, the, mm-hmm. the additional work that some kids need, that can be more individualized. But some of it can be provided to everybody. It's just good instruction. Okay, so we talked about the early age being key. I know that Alicia and I both highlighted and wrote in our margins about frequent formative assessment being necessary and also high quality interventions. And I think everybody wants to know what are some appropriate assessments to um, determine if a kid's at risk and then if they're um, continuing to be at risk or if they're improving in a way that they would need to to accelerate to grade level. And then also, what are some high-quality interventions that are evidence-based? And so we're pretty sure that we're going to get into phonemic awareness and phonics with you. Hopefully we will. And there's a lot of controversy always around that, too, which we're not quite sure we understand either. But um, as far as formative assessment, what are some of the things that you've used that you find are helpful in determining how kids are progressing? There are a couple of different things to parse uh, there. One is a screening tool, which is different from the formative assessment, of course. You, the screening tool is just to throw out a net and try to catch those students who are at risk. A universal screener. Is it, that what you call it? Yeah, or, sure. Okay. Uh, right. Universal in terms of what everybody could use okay. in, a, in a more standardized way. Okay. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there's ongoing work to try to develop the best screening tool mm-hmm. because any screening tool is going to either catch too many kids, you know, identify some kids who really don't prove to be at risk, or it's going to catch too few kids. It's going to have, have either false positives or false negatives. I would rather have false positives and just capture as many kids as possible. But, you know, there are various tools there. The The PAR uh, is, is a good example. What's that? Yeah, the PAR is the predictive assessment of reading. Uh, that can be given as early as two-thirds of the way through kindergarten. Once they've had some some experiences in the classroom, and they should have been picking up letter identification, you know, and certain amount of phonemic awareness uh, instruction. That's a good screening tool. Dibbles is used a lot as a screening tool as well as a formative uh, assessment. But you want to just throw out the net and capture kids who are at risk. And then in terms of formative assessment, you want to identify those underlying components of, of good reading skills. Obviously, phonemic awareness is one. So you want some way of measuring on an ongoing basis whether a student is progressing in phonemic awareness. We used it to Paul years ago. We did use the Dibbles subtest for phonemic awareness. We then developed our own because we found that a little too too limited. And so one of the things, for example, we focus on is how, how many phonemes a student is able to segment and blend. 
uh, because what we've learned is that's not it's not an all or one skill. Students are able to segment two phonemes and then three phonemes and then four phonemes. And that's crucial because if you're trying to teach a kid to segment words with five phonemes, but their limit is two phonemes, then you're just wasting time and, and frustrating them. But you need some kind of tool that can help you monitor that, that rate of progress. Um, decoding, so that would be reading nonsense words. You know, can a student sound out words that are composed of the letters that they know, but they're not words that they would have already memorized? Uh, then another one would be sight word reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you would want more natural examples of reading. You know, one's reading passages so you can capture fluency uh, measures. Uh, you can check on comprehension. So you're wanting to, to track either all of those or the portions of those that you're really focused on at, at that time. For um, sight word and for phonemic decoding, we've used the Towery. That's an assessment that is only 45 seconds for yeah. two different subtests that, I mean, to me, that's been very helpful as you were talking about predictive quality too like it doesn't tell you everything you need to know about a student but boy it raises a flag yes it really does and I recently just gave it um, to a student who I had given it to him in October and here we are in March in third grade and he is even though his scores went up he is at the exact same percentile levels below the first percentile in one area and at the third percentile in another area so I thought this is something we need to take, you know, to our, our MTSS meeting. We need to show this because this is normed. This is, you know, this kid is making progress, but he's making progress at that level where he's not, he's still not going to be successful. Absolutely. Especially, you know, he's in third grade now. So, right. you know, this is a student who's going to have to undergo standardized testing and, you know, a lot of, of weight is going to be on his shoulders. So. Yeah, that, that's the mark of a good screening tool is that it's quick. Yes. <laughs> and, and that definitely is a quick test. Yes. Yeah. Um, so about some of the interventions that can be used. I know that you're in an environment that's very focused on supporting kids with learning differences, as you said. But you know that a lot of us are in general ed classroom. What are some interventions that might be available to a general ed teacher that they could learn and and implement and be able to help their kids grow? What are some of the things that you would think could be used? Well, first I would say that when a decision like that's going to be made, it really needs to be made school-wide. It can't be something that exists in one teacher's classroom because once that child leaves that classroom and moves to someone else, that's like traveling to a different planet if the next teacher isn't following the same curriculum, using the same terminology, teaching the same strategies. So it's got to be a school-wide decision that everyone buys into. And here's the important thing. It can't just be bought into and followed by the language arts teachers. It needs to be bought into and learned and utilized by science teachers, social studies teachers, music teachers, anyone who might have a kid reading in front of them. They need to be able to step in using the same terminology and say, that first syllable is open, and then allow the student to decode it. That's key to success. And that's one thing I will say about our school that I'm very proud of. Every teacher in our school, other than our PE teacher, teaches language arts. And so they, and then they specialize, many of them specialize uh, in areas other in than language content, arts. In addition. Oh, okay. So that same those same terminologies and strategies and concepts are taught 
and incorporated in every subject area at our school. Alicia, your face is telling me all sorts of things. What do you think? I think it's wonderful because, as you know, I feel like in every subject there's literacy because there is. I mean, literacy is everywhere. And especially as an elementary school teacher, we're expected to be experts in every subject. But I hear many times, well, I departmentalize. I'm, I'm a math teacher. There's literacy in math. Absolutely. <laughs> left to right reading, you read a problem from left to right. I mean, so... I completely, I think that's wonderful because you're absolutely right. That consistency, they could go from a teacher who has two years limited experience and the next year they're going to someone that has 25 years, is an expert, and then the next year in third grade they might have a brand new teacher mm -hmm. because that's just how our system works. And But if they came into a school that had a strong system in place that said, this is what we believe, this is what we do, you're going to be trained. Here's the research mm -hmm. of why we do it this way. I just, I think not a lot of kids would be falling through the cracks. No. For a big system, it's hard to make that happen because everybody doesn't go to the same trainings. Everybody doesn't have the same opportunities. Everybody doesn't have the same admin focus in their school. So that, that would be ideal. I think we would we would probably see the best results we could if we had every, things more systematic. Absolutely. Once a school decides to go in that direction, they should, uh, they should research what's called structured literacy. I've been seeing that around. What is mm -hmm. that? What does that mean? It's in this document. Yes, it is. I think I is. wrote in the margins. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, it is a more standardized set of expectations for a curriculum uh, okay. that are research-based, and there are certainly a number of curricula that are uh, structured literacy. But what's going to be the, the same about all of them is they're all going to be very explicit in their instruction. Okay. It's not embedded phonics. It's not, you know, it's not on, off the cuff, today I'm going to teach the letter M. It's a very explicit and structured uh, and sequential program. And if you look at these curricula, the, the sequence of concepts are going to be different. You know, for example, at DePaul, we have our own, our own curriculum. The sequence of letters taught might differ slightly from, say, Barton or Slingerland or Wilson, or Wilson reading program. And the research really doesn't show any difference in uh, success rate among those curricula, as long as they have a reason for teaching them in the order that they do. You know, so one idea builds upon the idea before it, and each idea leads to the next uh, level. Uh, do you spiral back typically in that type of curriculum too? Do you go back to review and then forward? We don't consider it spiraling, okay. uh, but but we constantly review. Okay. So every time you introduce the next concept, you pull all the previous concepts with you. Okay. So it's it's a lot of people would see that as spiral, but the traditional idea of spiral really was leaving some students with learning differences behind because say in math. Spiraling might mean you have fractions at the end of your second grade year and then not again until the end of your third grade year, and they've lost everything okay. that they once knew. Okay. So, but it's a constant pulling, pulling forward of everything they've had before that point. Okay. Um, so it's going to be explicit. It's going to be systematic and structured. Uh, there's going to be uh, constant monitoring of progress. There's going to be a lot of opportunity for practice and feedback, and that's crucial because it is so difficult, so much more difficult for these students to learn. They require 
four, five, six times as much practice as their, as some of their peers. So there's got to be that practice with feedback built in and preferably some fun ways of practicing, not drill and kill and not yes. worksheet based. Also, it's going to be multi-sensory. It's not going to be just words on a page. It's going to be hands-on. It's going to be literally putting your hands on letters and pulling them apart or holding up cubes and moving them around to represent the sounds that they hear in a word. It's going to be very hands-on. It's also, to be structured literacy, it's got to be very intense uh, in terms of frequency, in terms of group size. There's got to be a lot of attention on each student so the groups are small. What group size would you say would be um, typical for that approach? It depends on the age and the severity of need. Uh, Younger kids, ideally a group of five, four. (laughs) If uh, if students are older and they all are on about the same level so they need the same information, you can have larger groups of 10 or 11 even. uh, But again, if their needs are very severe, then you're going to want to decrease that size so they can get even more individualized attention. There are certainly many programs that are taught just one-on-one. And, and that certainly is effective, but it may not be efficient for a school. If you're going to want a child to get a good amount of instruction every day in this, you're probably going to have to pair them up and, or team them up with, with other kids to be able to achieve that. Kids need other kids, definitely, mm-hmm. to be their language models, their reading models, their, their talking partners. Right. That helps them move forward. Um, multi-sensory. Tell us a little bit more about that. I remember um, coming to one of your trainings and you had lots of little things that you gave us that kids lots could ride things. on and, <laughs> and little cut apart cubes. And, um, you know, what are some of the tools that a teacher should have um, in their toolkit? Like actual tools, not figurative okay. tools. Yeah, yeah. real, true, yeah. concrete tools. Uh-huh. I, I would say first the goal should be to think like a math teacher. Math teachers always think in terms <laughs> Alicia, of what? <laughs> what can I put in kids' hands. We did a podcast earlier about tools, mm-hmm. literacy tools. So exactly, yes. yes. And that's just I'm just thinking of that cross. We use manipulatives in math. It's the same. Yes, it is. We've reached a point where math teachers don't think, oh, I can do, I can make it without any manipulatives. Of course, right. they think, well, how do I show this? How do I make it very concrete to the students? Um, before I introduce symbols, how do I make sure they understand the concept? The same thing is true with, with language arts. So for example, you're going to want some kind of objects to represent sounds. And you're not, I'm not talking about letters. I'm talking about objects like cubes or chips or tiles, uh, a collection of those per student. Um, if you have multicolored ones, that can benefit you. That can give you a lot of additional layers to the types of, of activities you, you give kids. There should be certain tool, certain objects that represent sounds, and there should be different objects that represent words. For example, if you want to, if you say, "I'm going to say a sentence to you," I want you to pull down one tile for every word in the sentence. And you really learn a lot by seeing how kids uh, break what really is an oral sentence. Really, is one long stream of sounds. Yes. I'm going to the doctor's office today. There were no breaks in in there, but how are their minds? breaking that stream into distinct words, you're going to notice a lot of misconceptions that then are teachable moments. So you want objects that represent sounds, objects that represent words, objects that represent syllables, and all of those should be distinct. You don't want to try to use the same object to represent different things. That gets very confusing. So different sizes, different colors, that kind of thing? If yes. you're going to use different objects? Okay. We use uh, two things for sounds. We use 
cubes, like interlocking cubes, and chips that are different colors on each side. And then for syllables, we use rectangles uh, that are cut out of some type of matte material. And so then you, you can have kids pull down a rectangle per syllable in a word, like tornado, and then on each of those uh, rectangles, they can put the chips or cubes to represent how many sounds in each of those syllables. Right. So it's nice when they kind of work together like yeah, that. Yeah, it's literally layers. It is. Okay. It absolutely is. So you're trying to make what's an invisible process visible. Yes. That's what you're doing for yeah. the kids. I love that idea. You can also uh, have some type of rough surface. This comes from some great work that Grace Fernald did decades ago uh, in what's called the multisensory, simultaneous multisensory. Uh, approach where kids are tracing letters or numbers or words with their fingertip on a rough surface, making sure they move their whole arm while they do it and looking at what they're doing and speaking at the same time. And what they're doing is they're bombarding their brain through different pathways with the same information. So they're getting tactile, they're getting large motor movement or kinesthesia, they're getting visual, they're getting auditory feedback, and it's, it's pretty significant the increase in rate of learning that you get through that, that simple approach. I think kindergarten teachers do that some, do, don't they, Alicia? They use I feel like they do, yes. Sandpaper, sandpaper and, letters or uh-huh. sand sometimes. Salt a, trays. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, all of those are examples of, of that. She, she developed a, an approach that had a couple of evolutions to it. One is size. You go from large to small. So you might even start with kids tracing on a wall or something, you know, very, very large, moving all the way down to the size of writing on paper. Uh, and the other evolution is from guided to uh, self-guided. So you might be tracing over a dotted line at first. So you're just following a path, letting that your muscles learn the movement that's involved in making an A. What does it feel like to trace a cursive A down to where they're, they're going without guidance? And anytime you have a breakdown at one of those stages, you go back one step. So if a child is uh, misforming a letter on their paper, you go back to tracing it on a rough surface and then back again to doing it on wow. paper. Wow, that's almost a gradual release kind of. It is. It's, it's very, very scaffolding. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's think about, uh, I have a little group, say, of students in front of me who are really struggling with decoding. They're struggling remembering their sight words. They're, they have some of those characteristics that we just talked about. What are some things that I would want to make sure to include in a lesson that I would want to do with them in a small group? I want to do some phonemic awareness with them. Mm-hmm. I want to do some phonics instruction. Mm-hmm. What else? Do we want to have them actually reading text that's at their instructional level? Do we want to have them listening to a lot of text since reading text is so laborious? Do we want to do both? How, do, how, do, how is it structured? You want to do a combination. You want, to be a, you want to have a blended lesson where some of it is what I call side of the pool practice. You know, it's not swimming across the pool. It's just sitting, sitting at the side of the pool practicing putting your head under the water. Or practicing your kicking, but then you do have to get out there and actually try to try to yes. implement it. So uh, the more isolated skills, you're right, would be phonemic awareness, learning to segment and blend sounds together, learning to count syllables, learning to recognize recognize rhymes. Then you would have uh, practice in decoding words and spelling words as well, not by memorization, but by understanding the letter sound uh, relationship. 
learning to identify each sound in a word and then blending it together. I think what's crucial in phonics instruction is that, that teachers understand how phonemic awareness relates to phonics. You know, for many, many years, phonics was the standard way of teaching reading to, to struggling readers, but we were only getting them so far, maybe about a fourth grade level, and then there was a breakdown. And the problem was we were trying to build phonics on a weak foundation of, of understanding sounds themselves. So you've got to build that foundation of, of skill with sound. I can identify sounds. I can recognize them. I can blend them together. I can pull them apart. I can isolate them. Can it's isolate so hard them. for my English learners because, like you said, if you've ever heard someone talk in another language, it really sounds like just one long stream. Absolutely. And um, we do get a lot of kids who come after the primary years. They arrive here in the United States and they go into a U.S. school and they immediately just are put in a group and start. And some of them are fortunate enough that they are able to pick it up a lot, but you can see in their writing, I've noticed, especially when they've missed that phonemic piece. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's almost kind of a surface knowledge without that because they can't then apply it and produce it right. in writing. That's exactly right. And this is where brain research comes into play because they're dealing with the same issue as someone with a reading disability, base yeah. reading disability. Their brains don't have those those connections yet for mm -hmm. recognizing those sounds, but it's for a different reason. It's for a different someone reason. Someone with dyslexia didn't have it in the first place. Someone coming from a different language their brains actually pruned away the ability to recognize sounds that weren't in their language. I don't need to recognize that sound, so I don't, it doesn't exist in my mind anymore. <laughs> That's absolutely true. But you can, you can create those connections through practice. Yes, a lot of practice. But it's hard when we have like fourth and fifth graders who their teachers don't know about phonemic awareness because they're not usually teaching their class that, that skill. So... Um, you know, it's just, it's it's difficult. You have to try to backward engineer some of it. And Absolutely. the kids, I think I remember you saying one time, and please correct me if I misunderstand or misremembered this, but that for an older student who's lacking phonemic awareness, that segmenting and blending are the main things. They that absolutely you really, are. Okay, yeah. that you should really be focusing on, which is what I try I try to get them to do. And they, they do enjoy, phonemic awareness can be really fun, I think. Oh, it can you be. Know, it can be. It's it, wordplay. If, if phonemic awareness is dry, you're doing something. You really are. Yeah. You're. you're, you're you need to get some training and, and, you need and to more get some ideas. Fun training. Yeah. Um, so back to your original question in terms of a lesson, you do want phonemic awareness that would be fun and very hands-on. Okay. Uh, and that phonemic awareness would not include letters. It would be focused on sounds, developing your brain's ability to process the sounds of language. Then you have the phonics instruction, where sounds and letters are together and you're working on decoding and spelling. Uh, you would definitely want to make sure that your phonics lesson was including work on syllables. You know, old school phonics really focused on one-syllable words. You can't find a book that's based on one no, single-syllable words. No. It's at very, very, very low level. So it's got to include inst very explicit instruction in how to how to decode multisyllabic words, and how to spell multisyllabic words. Uh, and then, of course, you have the sight word component of your lesson, and then you have passage reading, which should be at a child's learning level in their zone of proximal development. Um, if that's very hard, then you can color code the words with an agreement with the student. The red words are words that I will give you when you reach them. 
and then you can tackle more interesting word, uh, sentences because it's, sometimes it's hard to create sentences that are very interesting if students only know 11 of the right. <laughs> 11 letters out of the alphabet so yes. far. But, uh, but somehow to challenge them to read actual text and, and then you can work on fluency, you can work on comprehension. If I'm a teacher of say a fourth or fifth grade or even older student, I'm probably going to have to be very explicit in teaching how to read fluently and how to engage in text, how to actively read in order to comprehend what I've read. Because they haven't had much practice doing that? Absolutely. Okay, so they haven't heard themselves read fluently. So how do they really know what a fluent reader sounds like? Because we don't really model that that much in the classroom after the really young grades, right? right? And that's why early intervention is so important. Because yeah. if you catch them early, the focus is really teaching decoding. And that's it. The, everything else kind of flows along because they are reading. But if you wait till later, then it becomes separate issues. We, we often have kids at DePaul, we teach them how to decode, and then they, they're reading long words. It's amazing. But they're disfluent, so we have to teach them how to chunk or you know, capture phrases. phrases together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so they sound more natural mm-hmm. uh, and are faster in their reading. And then we have to teach them often how to comprehend. You're actually supposed to have a movie running in your head while you read. Let's practice oh. doing that. You're actually supposed to ask yourself questions while you read. They don't know those kind of things. So you have to explicitly teach older kids how to do those. I had some third graders yesterday that are really probably my most struggling readers. And we read a lot of poetry because they can manage a poem. They can read it. They can choral read it. They can become more fluent with it. And then we can do our work, you know, around that to make it more interesting for them. Mm -hmm. And it was about ice cream. And I just happened to ask them, I said, what kind of ice cream do you see? You know, because the poem is about ice cream. And several of the kids told me, and a couple of the kids said, what do you mean? I said, well, what kind of ice cream do you see when you, and they said, I don't see ice cream. What do you mean? And right. I just, it floored me. I thought, oh my gosh, they're not, they are not visualizing anything right. at all. Exactly. <laughs> and it just, I know that, but it was just a wake-up call because I thought, oh, so then we started talking about, you know, get the chocolate ice cream with your scoop, now put the sprinkles on top, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing because they're so used to struggling, struggling through the text that they they don't see it. No. One really good curriculum that you can that I could recommend for that skill is through Linda Mood Bell. They're, they call it V and V, visualizing and verbalizing. Okay. And that's some really good uh, sequential materials that you can use with a class or an individual student to literally teach them how to picture what they're reading or hearing. We a lot of our kids at DePaul, a lot of our classes, when they start to read a novel, in their language notebook, they will create their cast of characters. They will find pictures from magazines or or whatever to represent the characters in their book. So they actually, it's all sort of like being a movie director. Mm-hmm. I'm going to cast Leonardo DiCaprio as this character. Yeah. I'm going to cast this, you know, this actor or this person that I know or my mom as this character. But we actually put pictures of them in the notebook so we can refer back to them and make sure we're picturing what we're reading about. I need to do more of that. One thing I wanted to ask you about, because I struggle with this a lot with my students, is sight words. What do you do when they just, they don't remember the sight words, no matter what you do? I mean, I've tried everything, literally everything I know to do, and it's still a struggle to remember those. We use the same approach that we do with math facts. 
because we get quite a few kids who come to us even by sixth or seventh or eighth grade who don't know any of their math facts. And that's a characteristic of dyslexic kids sometimes, right? It can be. It's difficult to remember facts that you have to memorize. Yeah, because okay. it is language-based. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's like memorizing a poem or memorizing a, a phrase of words, two plus two equals four. That's mm -hmm. just, that's a phrase uh, or a sentence. And a lot of our kids struggle with that. So what we do is we focus on very few words at a time. If you're doing sight words, very few, I would say three new words at a time and you over practice them. So you want to, you want them to practice reading those words, I would say five or six times a day officially, and then maybe some more unofficially through the day, which means they've got to get some of that at home. They've yeah. got to get it just spontaneously in the hallway. Uh, you know, when we're standing in line for the water fountain, I'm going to flash you one of your words. You know, I want you to say what it is. And they, they practice that repeatedly for days. And then once they learn them, once they're saying them consistently correctly, you add some words to the mix, but you don't retire those words. You keep them in their pack of cards or, or on their list on their paper. So they're still practicing them every day. They're just practicing the new words even more frequently each day. Okay. So, but it's a struggle for kids who uh, who don't have good visual memory. Yes. We really haven't talked about the the three main components of, of that are underlying dyslexia, but one is visual processing, one is auditory processing, and then one is rapid naming. And each of those and play. And that's memory, right? The rapid naming is that linked to working memory? Or? No, working memory would be a fourth component you could okay. add to it. Uh, okay. It's not identified as the underlying cause of dyslexia, but okay. those other three are. Okay. Rapid naming is just the ability to pull words that you know from your mind. How quickly can you do that? Okay. If when and there are tests that that you can give to to see how someone's rapid naming. Uh, We've given the C-top. I mean, is that one that you know of that, yeah, that allows has a rapid you to naming do the rapid component. naming? Sure. Okay. So you might show, as you know, you might show them uh, a sequence of colors. Yes. And you go over ahead of time to make sure they know the words. What are you going to say for this? Brown. This is red. This is green. This is blue. But then I'm going to show you these colors over and over again in random order. How quickly can you name them? Same thing with simple pictures and even letters. Mm -hmm. uh, letters not, and numbers. Yeah, but not a huge number of them. Just the same, say, six or eight over and over again in random order. And you can see which adults or children really struggle to pull words quickly. And there's a very direct link between that and fluency in a predictive way. Uh, so that's one component, processing of, of sounds, which of course is phonemic awareness. And then the visual processing, it's, you know, the eyes are working great, the brain in general is working great, but how the brain is processing and understanding and remembering Visual what input. it sees okay. uh, is somehow skewed. Originally, it was thought that dyslexia was mostly caused by trouble with visual processing. It turns out to be that that does exist for, for some dyslexic readers, but the most common issue is the is processing of sound. Okay. There was, uh, for a long time, uh, if they reversed letters, like the letter reversal was supposed to be the key indicator, and then later, you know, I remember learning that that's not necessarily... What it's, every dyslexic no. uh, person does. No. Many, many dyslexic people do not reverse letters. But I will say there are quite a few dyslexic people who do. Yes. And when you see a student in third grade, I have one who still mixes up the N and the U, you know, and that's a pretty different orientation. Right. She does that consistently still or does in, writes N and I right. in third grade. You know, I think, oh, there's something going on with that visual, you know, input. It's the, the way it makes sense to me, there was a psychologist years ago who described it as having a visual anchor. 
most of us are anchored visually in a left, right, up, down orientation. And some people lack that anchor, especially left, right. And when you think about it, other than reading, the orientation of something shouldn't affect its identity. Right. You know, yeah. if I hold a coffee cup in one <laughs> direction so the handle is on the right, and then I turn it so the handle is on the left, I haven't it's changed still it into a, a cat. Cup. Yeah, right. I haven't changed it into yeah. a dog or an elephant. Oh, it's wow. still a mug. Yeah. But you chain you you do that to a bee, mm-hmm. and it's no longer a bee. It's a D. Right. And, and that's that's weird. It's very strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, Yeah, for those who struggle with visual processing and visual memory, you will often see letter reversals. You'll see very disorganized work on paper. Mm -hmm. Not just poor handwriting, but just where things are put on a paper Mm -hmm. can just be mind-boggling sometimes. And a very difficult time remembering uh, what's been seen. All right, so for those of us who encounter kids that have a lot of these characteristics in our classrooms, um, what would you want us to know? What should we be thinking about? You should immediately start giving that student some specialized attention in the foundational skills that lead to reading. So as we've said many times today, the phonemic awareness is going to be crucial, but that alone is not sufficient. We kind of swung too far for a few years where that was all kids were getting and they weren't getting anywhere. They've got to get that phonemic awareness, but then they also have have to have a good phonics program that includes syllable uh, instruction. Uh, They've got to be working on fluently reading passages, and they have to be learning to uh, recognize and remember sight words. If they can't can't get those things to be an automatic uh, response for them, then they're not going to be fluent readers. Okay. Well... We've taken a lot of your time. Have I rambled way too long? No, I could sit here forever. I have probably 10 more questions I could ask, but we have them post on your time. Alicia, do you have any other questions or anything else you want to ask about? I just want to mention at the end of that toolkit, Uh there are resources for teachers and parents with links that I think um, people may find helpful. Um, There are some articles, some books, uh, a webinar is on there. Um, I think that that might be helpful if they want additional information. Okay. The um, International Dyslexia Association seems to have a lot of really good That's an excellent, resources excellent and resource. materials. I'll tell you another one. If you're really just a geek into research, um, <laughs> the, the NICHD website. Oh, okay. Uh, which is one of the National Institutes of Health. It's to break it down. It's the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Okay. We call it NICHD. They have been the hub of research for about 30 years now and they've been uh, organizing and funding through through federal money uh, the research into reading disabilities they've funded educational research psychological research medical research doing a lot of genetic research now Um, so you can always find just very geeky information on there i think we fall in that category don't you alicia i think so yeah i think think we're right there with you All right. Well, thank you so much. We've appreciated so much having time to talk to you and and your care and the work and learning you've done on behalf of so many students. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you both.